Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, with Pastor John King. Where does all the time go? That's what I want to know. It's already, I won't, I won't rub it in. How many days there are until Christmas? I don't, I don't know that we want to do that, do we? No. Okay. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. We are, uh, man, we're starting a new chapter, a new book, if you will. In our study here at Calvary Chapel, Elizabeth City, we are going to be in the book of Daniel. Great book of Daniel. So turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. We'll be covering verses 1 through 7. As you turn there, let me uh, just remind you, the life of Daniel spans the entire 70 years of Jewish captivity by the Babylonians and Persians. The, the historical time is from around 605 to 536 B.C. It opens with the account of Daniel being deported by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon during the rule of Judah's king Jehoiakim. Daniel wrote about events he experienced and visions he received during the time of his Jewish exile. His service as a government official is said to have ended during the first year of King Cyrus's reign, and his prophetic ministry sometime during the third year of Cyrus. Daniel likely completed his writings within a few years of his retirement, which would put that around 532 to 530 B.C. We know that Daniel lived a long and fruitful life, and assuming that he was in his teens when he was exiled to Babylon, he would have been around 85 or 90 years old when he completed his writings. Some of Daniel's contemporaries are the prophets Ezekiel, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, and Zephaniah. And one thing you need to know about Daniel when it comes to modern scholars and liberal theologians because Daniel's prophecies are so accurate, and you're going to see that, we're all going to see that as we go through this teaching. Because his prophecies are so accurate, there are many liberal scholars that would try to tell you it couldn't have been Daniel that wrote it. It had to have been well after the fact, because no way could he have prophesied so accurately. Yet Daniel was quoted three times by Ezekiel, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself said this, when he refers to Daniel the prophet in Matthew 24, 15, Jesus said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, not by some other person, by Daniel the prophet, the one who wrote this book, standing in the holy place, he said, Jesus, he, he warned him, whoever reads this, let him understand. And of course, he was talking about the mid-portion mid of the Great Tribulation. So Daniel wrote this book. Now the main themes, there's two main themes if you're taking notes. And you're going to see it all throughout of Daniel. First of all is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God over all we see and how the Lord is sovereign over all events of all men and women in history. From beginning to end, all circumstances, God is sovereign. For the nation, it was the fall of Jerusalem through the 70 years of exile and the return from exile. We see God is sovereign over this. For Daniel and his companions, it was his favorable reception, his wisdom and his knowledge, 
and miraculous deliverance through trials. God is sovereign. God is sovereign over all events, over all miracles. And for the world, Daniel's prophetic and apocalyptic events, which will lead to Jesus' return and rule and reign once and for all. This was all predicted. Daniel the prophet spoke in all these things. So first of all, the main theme, sovereignty of God. The second main theme for you and I to see, especially early on, actually all throughout, is the topic of Christ and culture. Through the life of Daniel, we will see how to faithfully navigate living and working as Christians in a very secular world. I mean, we, our conversations, will always, it always comes back to what's going on in the world and the crazy stuff that's happening. And don't think the world wasn't crazy and out of control when Daniel was alive. Our challenge today is being in the world, but not of the world. John 17, verses 15 and 16, I'm reading from a New Living Translation. This is what Jesus is saying. I am not asking you, Father, to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. And when we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, deliver me, deliver me from temptation, deliver us from the evil one. That's what Jesus is talking about. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. So what can you expect from our time in Daniel? Well, first of all, as we said, the sovereignty, the supreme rule, the power and authority of God. Next, we'll see the sinfulness and rebellion of the human race. All familiar with that, starting with us. The reality of spiritual warfare and the power of prayer, the power of prayer. The truth and accuracy of God's holy word, which includes, includes true prophecy accurate prediction of the future. We will see the prediction of the rise of the Antichrist in the last days and the forces of evil that align themselves against Israel and all true believers. We will see the prediction of the Great Tribulation, the resurrection of the dead, and the ultimate triumph of God's kingdom over the kingdoms of this world and all the forces of evil. We will be reminded over and over again Who's in control? Amen. Amen. Let's read our passage for today. Daniel 1, verses 1 through 7. Now in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Aspenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel, excuse me, and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking and gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach in the language and literature of the Chaldeans or Chaldeans. Those are the Babylonians. And the king appointed 
for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that in the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. Father, we thank you for our time today. As we begin this exciting book of Daniel, Lord, we ask that you would go before each one of us. Lord, help us to kind of reset and get refocused on your plan and purpose, Lord. Help us to push aside the worries of this world and today. Give us this time in our sanctuary together with you. We thank you and praise you as we begin our study. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. So we start out with the times, you know, the, the, the historical times of Daniel the prophet. We see that God is working. It's what I, what I said in our introductory. Notice it was in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. So by now, by 605 B.C., the nation Israel has long been divided between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The book of 1st and 2nd Kings records the successive kingdoms who their rulers leading up to the fall of their nation. There were 39 of them you know, added together, the northern and southern. And notice that not a single king who held office in the northern kingdom was right with God. All of them did evil in his sight. And so some over 100 years before, almost 120 some odd years before, he gave them over to the Assyrian nation. But here we have the southern kingdom of Judah. And about half of the kings of Judah were corrupt as well. The northern kingdom, as we said, had already fallen in 722 B.C. So here you have King Jehoiakim. He was the third from the last king of Judah. Prior to being conquered by Babylon, the Egyptian king Pharaoh Necho had changed Jehoiakim's name from Eliakim. And we're going to talk a little bit more later about name changes and what happens when things, when people get uh, uh, brainwashed. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things they do when they have control over you is they change your name. Now even though Jehoiakim was referred to as king, he was in reality a conquered vassal, kind of like a puppet. He wasn't really in charge, neither with, under Pharaoh Necho, nor would he be in charge under the great king Nebuchadnezzar. Now, who is this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon? You've all heard of him for sure. He came to Jerusalem and he besieged it, is what our text says. Now his name, Nebuchadnezzar, means Nebo or Nebo, protect the crown. This great king of Babylon reigned from 605 to 562 B.C. His name is found 60 times in the Old Testament. From the book of Kings and Chronicles, the prophets Nehemiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and here in Daniel. Through him, we will see God's sovereign control over the destiny of Israel. Remember the prophet Jeremiah in 20, uh, Jeremiah 27.6. This is an example of how God uses people for his sovereign will. Jeremiah 27.6 
the Lord says through Jeremiah, and now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. You notice he says, I have given all these lands. Given them to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Notice he says, my servant. My servant. See, the Lord can use anybody to do his will. Anybody. And he says, by the way, and the beasts of the field I've also given to serve him. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was one of the great kings, one of the greatest kingdoms of all time. And we're going to talk a lot more about that in Daniel's prophetic reading, when we read in the prophetic portion of this book. He was such a great ruling monarch. There was never, you know, in the, in the ancient world, there had never been anyone with that much power concentrated on one single individual, ever. And of course, we're going to see as the as those great kingdoms fall in the history of man, leading us up here to this present day and the coming uh, revived Roman Empire in the end times. Babylon, it starts with Babylon. 605 BC was a very big year for uh, Nebuchadnezzar. When you look at the history of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar had just succeeded his father, Nabopolassar, Nabopolassar as king of Babylon. So in 605, he became king. Earlier the same year, he commanded the Babylonian army when it defeated the coalition of the Egyptian and Assyrian forces at a place called Carchemish on the Euphrates River. And then we see all three events. We see the three events that took place. Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of Egypt and Assyria, his being crowned the king of Babylon, and his conquest of Judah. All these things happened in that one year. Now the archaeological evidence of Nebuchadnezzar's dominance is overwhelming. I have examined, says the 19th century English diplomat, his name was Sir Henry Rawlinson, he says, I have examined the bricks belonging to perhaps a hundred different towns and cities in the neighborhood of Baghdad modern-day Iraq now. I have never found any other legend than that of Nebuchadnezzar, the son of Nebopolassar, king of Babylon. Nine-tenths of all the bricks amid the ruins of Babylon are stamped with his name. You cannot deny the historical fact. And so what we see here as we move forward into verse 2, we see that the Lord, again, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord said, you know, Nebuchadnezzar has, now you have control over him. And he says, he gave him into his hand, and he says, with some articles of the house of God. You remember in Solomon's day when he built all this, this beautiful temple and all those gold and silver utensils and bronze articles that were kept God is sovereign over all his people, but he's, as he's taken down this country, as he's taken down Judah, as he's letting this guy come in and, and take over and, and pull them captive, they're also starting to pilfer or loot the temple and all the great wealth that was placed there. We need to remember, uh, again, I say this over and over, we, God is sovereign, but for you and I, because he's sovereign over you and I, that's included, right? You know that too, okay? <laughs> Whatever plans you may have, keep in mind. But we also need to be very thankful of how he uses his sovereignty over us as his children, as his people. We, we need to be super thankful, knowing how powerful that he is. 
knowing how merciful that he is, we should give thanks. He uses his sovereignty over us in mostly a protective way, even though it is sometimes corrective in nature. Romans 8.28, you know the the passage. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But why? Why would God allow this nation to be given over to the hand of a worldly and powerful oppressor like Nebuchadnezzar? Well, the answer is very simple. They were stubborn and they were rebellious. And that's the same thing that gets you and I in trouble, isn't it? One writer put it this way. He said, for more than 200 years... The Lord had used his prophets to warn the people to repent of their horrible sins and wicked lifestyles. But the people refused to heed the Lord and his prophets. Nevertheless, the Lord continued to show compassion by sending one prophet after another to declare the mercy of God. On the other hand, the Lord warned the people that his mercy could not continue forever. As we say, we sing that song, His love endures forever. But we also remember that His mercy will not continue forever against rebellious people. That a day would come when justice would have to be executed. Still, the people continued to shut their ears to the prophets. And they never genuinely repented nor ever truly lived for the Lord. It's tragic when you see it. As a result, the day came when the people were beyond repentance. No matter how much compassion the Lord showed, nor how many appeals he made to them, consequently, justice had to be executed. Wrongs had to be dealt with. The time for judgment to fall had arrived. Now that, that, may, be, that may smack a little, that may sting a little when you hear the words beyond repentance. Uh, Because we do live in the time of grace. Jesus came and he paid the price for all of our sins. And so it's never too late for anyone that, that you know or I know to repent and give their life to the Lord before you die. We know that. But we also know that at death, judgment will come. Judgment will come. But instead of thinking of God as some mean guy up in the sky, you know, distant and just wanting to apply his, you know, his hard will. Let's look at 2 Chronicles 36 verses 15 and 16 real quickly. Notice that the Lord, it says, the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, by his prophets, rising up early and sending them. This is a description of what God would do. This is is personifying God to show you and I that he would get up early because he was up all night worrying about us. You know the feeling when a loved one has gone astray or you don't know what's happened to them and you're up all night. Because he had compassion on his people in his dwelling place, but they mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words and they scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, and there was no remedy. That's where they came. So it's it's important for you and I to understand, first of all, God's grace through Jesus Christ, and who he is, 
and how he would deal with his people. One writer said this, he said, reading this passage, he says, what a touching and graphic phrase. How did God yearn over the sinful and rebellious city? Like a man who has a sleepless night of anxiety for his friend or child and rises at the dawn to send a servant on a message of inquiry or a message of love. How eager is God for men's salvation? Now we go back to our text in verse 2 at the end. It says, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and he brought the articles of the treasure of the house to the treasure into his house. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar took God's treasures from God's temple that he had given to God's people and now this foreign king was, had foreign gods and he was going to bring those articles to his temple. The land of Shinar is another word for ancient Babylon, the city of Babylon. To the house of his god, one of his gods was a, a god called Bel. It was one of the chief deities of that time, and there were many others. How did they get in this situation? Well, if you know your Bibles, you'll know that a hundred years prior, King Hezekiah was being a show-off. And he foolishly displayed these articles of the house of God to the Babylonian ambassadors. So they'd already come in, they'd seen, they knew it was there. They'd scoped it out, they'd, they'd cased the joint, if you will. And they knew all the riches that were in the temple. And Isaiah the prophet at that time, again, got to send his messengers. Isaiah the prophet had warned him not to do this. He warned Hezekiah, don't do this. But as a result, Isaiah predicted what would happen. Babylon would conquer Judah and carry off the wealth of the nation, Isaiah 39, 6 and 7. Again, a prophecy fulfilled. He said, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Some thoughts so far. One is, no matter how godly our parents are, their godliness cannot secure our salvation. Remember, these were the sons. These were the sons of the kings of Judah. The last four kings of Judah were the sons of Josiah. You guys know he was a great revivalist. He was a godly king who led Judah in a great revival. But his four sons after that, because of their rebellion, they were the ones who triggered God's hand of judgment. The point for all of us, especially if you have kids or grandkids, is that following God is a personal, individual decision. Revelation twenty-two seventeen, And the Spirit and Bride say, Come, let him who hears come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. It's an individual decision. God is patient, and he provided plenty of warnings to repent and get right with him, both then and now. Because judgment is coming. I mean, that's our, sort of our message to the world. You know, did you know that, did you, do you know Jesus? Do you know where you're going to go when you die? Will you be in heaven, and why? Why do you think you'll be in heaven? Why do you think God will accept you? 
For he says in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, he says, for he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. There isn't a day that goes by that the gospel message isn't important because you don't know how long you're going to go in this life. Another thing we're going to learn, another thought here, is one of the basic principles of human life, especially if you're a farmer or you grow a garden, is that of sowing and reaping. If we sow in a spiritual sense, if we sow a life of lawlessness, we reap the penalty of law and punishment. In other words, what comes around goes around. The same principle applies in a spiritual sense. Galatians 6, 7, and 8, he said to the Galatians, Paul said, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So some basic principles going in, God being sovereign. Now we start to see in verses 3 and 4, we kind of, now we're going to kind of uh, zoom in and see Nebuchadnezzar's strategy. Nebuchadnezzar's strategy. And you'll notice some parallels with the world that we have today. In other words, get them while they're young. Get them while they're young. Verses 3 and 4. You see, Nebuchadnezzar, he had adopted a very shrewd policy. In order to prepare future leaders to serve in his empire, he would look for the best and the brightest, young men from those he had conquered. He would separate them from their families where they could be educated and molded into the Babylonian ways and culture. We have our culture wars, don't we? You know, our culture's waiting for our kids and grandkids, aren't, isn't it? It's not all bad out there. Some of you are teachers, I know. <laughs> the Lord needs more Christian teachers in the public school system, that's for sure. And he says what here, what, what uh, Nebuchadnezzar, what he said, he instructed his chief official, if you will, his master of eunuchs, um, well, most commentators agree that it's not likely that Daniel and his companions and all the males were forced to be castrated, which is a, something you would associate with the word eunuch. And oftentimes that would really uh, kind of evolved into somebody who was like a chief of staff who ran the whole area. Um, in fact, if you look at Jewish law, it was a forbidden. And, and we're going to see Daniel is going to kind of draw a line in the things he will and will not do. And in Jewish law, castration eunuchs are forbidden. Um, but in, in, aside from that, he said he, he had this uh, Aspenaz, he said to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants from uh, and some of the nobles. Okay, these were children. They were probably between the ages of 12 and 14. And you've got to ask yourself the question, where, where does he get them? Where does he get these kids? Keep in mind that in, first, in Second Kings, you know, if you read through Kings and Chronicles, you see all this stuff. Nebuchadnezzar, at first, he deported 10,000 leaders, which included the commanders of the army, business leaders, craftsmen, politicians, and priests, all the leaders who might stir an uprising. He deported them first. When you look at uh, the history of the world and you see how 
people and lands and countries and nations are conquered. You know, they learn a lot from Nebuchadnezzar. We, uh, in our time, we can think of the Soviets, we can think of communism, we can think of Nazism, we can think of the things that have happened throughout the world. Um, how they would go after the intellectuals or they'd go after the scientists or they'd go after the smart people. Control them first. And there were, by the way, it wasn't just one invasion, it was three invasions. And so what was he looking for in these young men? Well, there were three qualifications we see it in verses uh, 4 right here. It says they had to be, first of all, young men in whom there was no blemish. In other words, they had to be strong and healthy. But they had to be good looking. He was very picky. They had to be good looking. They had to be handsome. They also had to be gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand. Because he wanted the best and the brightest to administrate his kingdom. And they would demonstrate the ability to learn every subject and develop the poise that would be needed to serve as leaders in government service. What does that sound like to you? It does sound like indoctrination, but it also should sound like what our colleges and universities are looking for, and our government. we got some young folks in here that are getting ready to go to university. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, sorry. Um, and it's interesting when you consider that. You know, what are these colleges and universities looking for? What about the entertainment industry? Hollywood or corporate America? They're looking for today's youth. And so parents, be wise. Now, you might say, well, uh, you know, it's a silly thing. Uh, sometimes we look at our grandkids and, and Margaret and I, we would say, you don't, we don't want you to get any older. <laughs> you know? But that's absolutely not going to happen. People are going to get older, all right. <laughs> not the least which uh, you and I, right, dear? <laughs> so... So you're not going to control all that. But, uh, but it's something to be mindful of. It's something to be mindful of, what the world is seeking to do. And as you see in the last couple of verses in today's message, you see, notice what he did. It said the king appointed for them. In other words, now it's time for indoctrination. It's time to indoctrinate. It's time to try and get them addicted to comforts. It's trying to get them to compromise and he's going to give them new names. And it says, And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. Now, he's going to give them preferential treatment. They were given royal housing, royal food, and wine, and they were going to attend the royal academy right inside the palace complex. They were being enticed to become loyal citizens of Babylon through special treatment. And such treatment was bound to appeal to most young men. And also they were going to give them three years of training. You know, you're going to get an advanced education. And this is where the indoctrination and the brainwashing would come in. Now, this, you know, even though this was being forced... He wasn't going to do it in a way. He wanted to bring it. Hey, look what we have for you. There were great promises. They would be assigned a secure position with a government job. Right? We talk about that sometimes. 
And so now we see his strategy, Nebuchadnezzar, what he's doing, how he's going to assimilate, how he's going to bring these people in. And now we zoom in a little fo- closer to the focus, main focus of our uh, story, and that is to the sons of Daniel, or excuse me, sons of Judah, and their name was Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These four companions would be tested by several means. The first would be food and drink and new names. Now here's, here's the reason why they were going to change their names. It was to help to erase their attachment to their own nation and religion. This is where the brainwashing starts to come in. So Daniel and his three friends were given Babylonian names. Now we read these names, you, you need to note that each of their Hebrew names include a reference to the only true and living God, the God of the Bible, but the Babylonian names points to the false God. Daniel was given the name Belshazzar. Daniel, his name was meant, God is my judge. And he received the name Belshazzar. Bel Bel protects his life. You can imagine Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to use Daniel's name in his interaction. He'd be continually reminded that God is my judge. Nobody wanted to be reminded of that. To Hananiah, he gave the name Shadrach. Hananiah's name meant Yahweh, the Lord, is gracious. And he was given the name command of Aku, or I am fearful of a god, little g. To Mishael, Meshach, Mishael, whose name meant who is God, excuse me, who is what God is, received the name Meshach, which simply in Babylonian means uh, who is what Aku is, another god. And then Azariah was given the name at Bendigo, whose name meant the Lord has helped. And he received Abednego, which means servant of Nebo, another god worshipped by the Babylonians. So today we hear the stories over and over again. Many of us have experienced this. When we Christians send our kids off to college, or sometimes to the military, Uh, But in college, they encounter an atheist professor who tries to remove their faith in God and his word. Right away. That's his goal for their freshman year. Or New Age philosophers who bring in Eastern mysticism. This is why we believe so strongly in the need for families who are teaching and being taught the word of God. That's that's something we, we believe very strongly for that. Each of us here, I know we all agree in that here at this church. Now next week, we'll see how Daniel and his friends deal with their new environment and their circumstances. And we're going to learn that Daniel, even though he can't control his surroundings, he can control his thoughts, his words, and his actions. He can control his motivations, convictions, and his beliefs. I don't need to convince you guys what kind of world we're living in. And even though most of us haven't maybe been snatched out of familiar surroundings, we still find ourselves in circumstances and environments over which we have no control. Governments, organizations, businesses, schools, and even some churches pass laws that go against what we believe in. 
The media promotes and provokes every type of sin, and they do it faster and faster and faster with the uh, digital age. It used to take a while to get your newspaper, right? <laughs> you might miss a couple days. Not now. And as believers, we will face the temptation to compromise our commitment to the Lord every single day. But we must not compromise with the world nor participate in its wicked ways. And so we're going to see through Daniel how to be in the world but not of the world. Paul, wrote the, Paul understood this very clearly when he wrote to the Roman church. He said in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, he said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. Father God, we thank you for our time today. And as we prepare for communion, Lord, we just ask that you would just help us to just kind of maybe take a quick inventory where we're at. Where are we with you? Where, where, where are we in our walk with you? Are things right with us and you? Are things right with us and others as we get ready to take communion together? Lord, help us to examine our hearts. And Lord, help us to understand that your word shows us how to live in this world and not be of this world. We, we have the, the ability to be led through this life without having to be constantly worried, without having to be constantly um, swayed and bombarded by the world's system. Yes, it's there. Yes, we can't change a lot of it. And sometimes it's going to be very difficult. But Lord, you give us a way. You make a way where there seems to be no way for all of our lives and each of us who walks in your will. So Lord, again, as we get ready to prepare for communion, we ask that you would simply go before us and each and every person who hears the sound of my voice, I pray that they would give their life to Jesus Christ without delay. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name and all God's people say. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.